0: Hey, welcome back to State of the Art, the podcast that sits at the intersection of art and technology. I'm your host, Gabe B.C. You can find us at State of the Art on Instagram or on Twitter, or you can send me an email to gabe at art.org with any questions or comments about last week's episode or, you know, just about your life in general. <laughs> uh, this week, we have a really interesting episode, two specialists in art conservation from the Time-Based Media Art Conservation Program at the Institute of Fine Arts in New York City, Dr. Hannelore Romick and Christina Frohnert. Uh, we talk all about how to conserve different works of media art and how this sort of relates to traditional time, uh, non-time-based media art conservation as well. So if you're interested in figuring out how to get your artwork to to last over time, this episode is for you. Or if you're just interested in art conservation in general as well, this is an interesting episode. Uh, Next week, I'm headed to New Orleans for Lunafet. I'm going to go explore the world of video mapping. I'm going to record on the street there. So we'll see what happens, what kind of trouble I get into. But for this week, I'd like to welcome Dr. Hanela Romick and Christina Frohnert to the podcast. Hannah and Christina, thank you so much for joining me on State of the Art. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Gabe. <laughs> so together at the Conservation Center of the Institute of Fine Arts, you're spearheading a new conservation program focused on the unique complexities of maintaining time-based media art. Uh, before we begin, can you just tell us what time-based media art is? Maybe we can describe it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: Time-based media art refers to artworks that have a durational element that will unfold to the viewer over time uh, and is mediated by slide, film, video, um, light, movement, or the internet, or software-based.
0: And uh, what are some of the main challenges uh, that go into conserving time-based media art?
1: Well maybe
2: um just to back up a little bit about the conservation center we're actually the oldest um degree um grant uh, the the oldest conserva- art conservation program in the United States and so we are training conservators in specialties such as paintings objects archaeological modern and contemporary or um paper um library and archives for many years. So um, all of this um, in our profession has been more or less um, you know backed up by ethics and um, workflows and protocols. And even though we consider you know all artworks being more or less individuals and unique, um, there are a lot of uh, procedures which have been established. But then um, you know with this new durational element, um, new challenges came um, in addition to our regular challenges that were actually enough so far.
0: <laughs> and what are those regular challenges? I mean, Hane, you want to talk a little bit about your background?
2: Yeah, so I was actually, I was trained as a chemist and got my PhD in metallo chemistry, and then um, I ended up in glass and ceramics and actually researching historic glass and ceramics and conservation issues related to it, such as stabilization or also um, understanding the change with time, so how glass surfaces would change and what we can do about it, cleaning methods, um, and also conservation materials, you know, anything from um, adhesives to surface coating. So what can we really do to keep artworks, um, more or less in the same um, uh, condition as we find them nowadays. So,
0: what did you study in order to get into this field?
2: Uh, well, you know, I mean, a solid background in chemistry is really um, a good starting point if you want to become a conservation scientist. So I'm not a conservator, I'm a conservation scientist. Um, but then from there, there is no beaten path to become a conservation scientist while, you know, training for art conservators in the meantime, um, you know, has been established in different universities. And in the U.S., we have at least, you know, four, um, great programs in art conservation. Um, but for conservation science, there is no beaten path and there are a few, um, yeah, opportunities uh, here and there, but you know, not not very extensive profession. It's a very small niche within material science. So
0: you're a it. bit of like a, a renegade then in some ways.
2: Oh, yeah. I would say I'm, <laughs> I'm a rare species, yes.
0: <laughs> Have you always been interested in, in art? Is that where this came from too?
2: Yeah. When I was young, I wanted to study archaeology actually. And um, I was always interested in art. And then, you know, coming from chemistry, I think um, that's, that's actually a pretty cool job. So I'm, I'm happy
1: I had this opportunity.
0: And Christina, yeah. how, what's your background then?
1: Mm-hmm. I was actually trained as a paintings conservator first, and then I started working at the Museum Ludwig, uh, at that time Museum Ludwig slash Weber Museum in Cologne uh, in, in Germany, uh, which basically was home uh, to two collections ranging from the 13th century to contemporary art. And... Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, 2000, the two museums um, separated and so entire building became available just for the Museum Ludwig, housing modern and contemporary art. And at that time, I became head of conservation, and so I was also technically together with my colleagues responsible for the entire collection, which was also home to a couple of hundred media artworks or a big video installation by June Paik, which was comprised of 215 CRT cut ray tubes monitors. So I was asking myself, how can my skill set translate into the care of those works? And this is when I learned about a program that became available in Switzerland, in Bern, for the conservation of modern materials and media. So I went there and graduated from there. And ever since, I'm working entirely in contemporary art conservation and more specifically time-based media conservation.
0: Wow. And how did the two of you meet originally? (laughs)
1: Oh, well, that's a long story. <laughs> me? uh,
2: I mean, we should have met many, many years before because I came to Cologne so often and and, and was working at the cathedral because the cathedral has a very, very extensive collection of stained-glass windows, Cologne Cathedral. Which and is next door,
0: which it, is a museum. It, oh, museum oh, wow. So you were next door and didn't <laughs> yeah, know each yeah, other at the yeah. time. So,
2: yeah. so probably there were already a lot of uh, vibrations there, but then we met in New York when I, I just, um, uh, you know, Attended a talk on CD. It was like optical optical media, optical media stability because I was interested, okay. and there you go. And then since then we are working together and have embarked on a on a rather um, challenging um, uh, endeavor. And this is really to establish this program. And it was really thanks to the Andrew W Mellon Foundation that we had this opportunity. Um, to obtain funding and to, um, yeah, to research, first of all, the background of what we need and uh, then also to really start it and um, to, you know, uh, do all what we do right now. Extensive program workshops, evening lectures, and um, also providing um, support for students who want to um, pursue this as a career for the future.
0: So before we talk too much about the program, I'm just curious about the conservation element here. And how is it different <laughs> thinking about a, a time-based media piece versus a more traditional mm-hmm. painting or sculpture?
1: Mm-hmm. There's an analogy I always like to use for students as well. So imagine you receive a loan request for a painting or a sculpture. So you go into your gallery or in the storage mm-hmm. facility and with Visual examination, you should be able to tell if the artwork is in a stable enough condition to be sent out on loan. If you receive a loan request for a media-based work, let's stick with the Namjoon Pike idea, like, let's say, a complex video wall. You go into your storage facility and you open boxes with cables, with equipment, with playback devices, with the media itself. Those works have a performative element, and without putting them together without performing the work. You can't judge its condition. So it just needs another level of um, equipment, but also skill set in order to judge its condition. Plus those works um, are also very, very sensitive to technological obsolescence. So, and um Certain um, equipment components have just been designed for the consumer market and have been picked up by artists. They have never really been designed to last for uh, 50 years or 100 years. So we have to um, identify the significance of all the components that comprise a complex media artwork and also have to understand how the use of equipment is also anchoring the artwork in time. It can provide a very, very strong and important um reference to the work so we are kind of fighting media obsolescence but also we have to work in a very collaborative environment because we really are dependent on the knowledge of um, mechanical engineers ad engineers computer scientists crt engineers and so we have to work in this environment in order to make the artworks last
0: yeah it sounds like a so much more work for both the artist and the curator and the conservator to think about, <laughs> right? Do these artists leave, uh, rules for the way that their work is shown? Like when you unbox these June Pike pieces, mm-hmm. does each box have a little note that says, here's what you do with that?
1: See, um, the answer to this is it depends. <laughs> Every artwork is different. And, um, see, our profession has started roughly twenty twenty five years ago. So, In the past, no, a few protocols were established. Today, if a media-based artwork enters a collection, there's already a lot of exchange with the artists. So there's a questionnaire that is sent out asking about the production history of the piece, the native files, the settings that were used in the computer before the product was exported. So we already gain a lot of information that will now really serve technical art um, history. And then <clears throat> once the artwork um, is received in an institution, it will be inspected um, by a conservator, so quality pre- control is performed. The documentation is uh, carried out. So we So we try to gather as much information at this crucial point in time when the work is as quiet as possible. And this is also when we reach out to the artists to ideally interview them in front of the installed work to capture this moment and to capture the artist's thoughts of how the work should live on if a certain component is not available to you anymore. So this is something that is established now and moving forward. Hopefully we will have enough documentation and enough materials so we can base our judgment on that. With older works created in the 60s in a more, let's say, innocent (laughs) environment, (laughs) we really have to um, use the sources, the few sources that are available to us and have to judge our options, and again, this is usually done in a collaborative environment with all the stakeholders involved in an in- institution or private collection.
2: But um, what Christine just said is really a little bit of the ideal world also. Um, mm-hmm. We should mention that many institutions have to pedal backwards mm-hmm. who have actually 10, 20 years ago uh, acquired... um some artworks which actually they don't know very much about and uh, they have been stored somewhere, maybe they were on um, on exhibition once or, you know, on loan once and then they were just packed up and, and stored somewhere and now um, you know, it, Basically, a piece, a puzzle has to be solved about, um, you know, what the piece really is. And then if the artist is still alive, you know, you you can definitely, um, uh, you know, do an artist interview and work with that. But I'm sure that many, many collecting institutions have uh, a lot of pieces um, somewhere in drawers or in the basement or wherever mm-hmm. um, on their computers um, mm-hmm. where they don't know that much about it.
0: Hannah we we talked a little bit before about uh Dan Flavin's work on the phone <laughs> and the the challenges with uh restoring a Dan Flavin piece can you talk a little bit about that i think it's pretty interesting actually
2: well i mean first of all um i really like light um as such of course you know as a material scientist i i think it's it's very fascinating light and color um uh, but also how we perceive color in regular artworks and how artists actually always played with light to create, um, art. And, um, you know, I mean, every painter has used light and shadow, um, uh, to, to create certain effects, but then, then Flavin more or less, you know, try to bring it to an extreme by just using light. And, um, Yeah, I think his pieces are, um, just so simple and complex at the same time. And they do pose a lot of, uh, problems for, um, preservation just simply because he has used the technology available to him, um, at this moment in time, which, you know, now becomes more or less obsolete, obsolete. And so fluorescent tubes are, um, you know, still you can still buy them, but, uh, you know, it becomes more and more, um, difficult. And, uh, Christina has worked on some pieces so maybe you want mm, to take it from there
1: yeah so um, another problem is uh, that some of the light colors are simply not available to us anymore or they are illegal in certain states <laughs> which which light colors are illegal cadmium red is to my knowledge illegal in california so you have these law restrictions that prohibit um, a work being shown as as originally intended. Plus, when you show um, a then-flabbing uh, piece, let's say it um, consists of seven cool white fluorescent tubes. Over the time, they will age apart slightly differently, and it will show over time, so the light quality may be a little bit irregular within the piece so um it is best to then replace the entire set <clears throat> of fluorescent tubes to um keep the integrity of, of 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 the light um as best as possible
0: do you think dan flavin uh, knew i'm intended for this to be a, a challenge for people <laughs> or is that part of the artwork in some way that these sculptures and if you haven't seen a Dan Flavin piece before they are mm-hmm. these brilliant uh, fluorescent tube sculptures that produce uh, very different tones of light they feel almost like they could be inside of a pharmacy at times mm-hmm. or a part of a cathedral um, but do you think that that's part of the the message of the artist that these tubes would die after a certain amount of time
1: well in a way these are conceptual works because every artwork comes with a certificate so the work <clears throat> Is the certificate and the drawing that specifically lays out how the fluorescent tubes should be arranged, what light temperatures, light colors uh, should be used? So in a way, that is the artwork. And to my knowledge, he didn't necessarily always assemble them himself. So there was—it's really in a way an instruction-based piece,
0: mm, sort of like a Saul LeWitt piece or something like that. Then, yeah. Do you think instruction-based work is the way to to conserve uh, time-based media art? Like, should artists be preparing instructions upon finishing a work?
1: Well, it is certainly uh, important to um, have the artist's thoughts on that, but we also sometimes reach a point where An external dependency of an artwork is not available to us anymore. Let me give you an example. Let's say an early John Turnbullie piece is um, was using um, a certain radio wave length that is simply not available to us anymore. This is something we would consider an external dependency that is beyond our control. Or think of artworks that were picking up the analog broadcast television signal. Analog broadcast was discontinued in 2009 in the US. Moving forward today artists using the internet to crawl certain websites, or AR, um, ARB's works may be uh, entirely dependent on a certain iOS um, environment, so once this is not available to us anymore, or once the artwork that was crawling data from a website is not available to us anymore, there's little we can do, because once this data cannot be used, the artwork somehow loses its contemporary link, and you can then discuss whether or not you are true to the work if you feed it with pre-recorded data. Um, I'm under the impression that moving forward, we will see this more and more and more, the use of external dependencies.
0: Hmm, Interesting. Is there a precedent for this when it comes to sort of traditional painting?
2: Well, Uh, here here is your material scientist speaking again, (laughs) right? I I mean, I really like ideas and instructions for artworks, but then, you know, there is a certain materiality that we all appreciate. And um, and, um, I, I think this will also remain in the future. And so um there is some value in keeping pieces even if they if for example if some equipment becomes obsolete and we cannot really repair or replace it right now we may want to keep it because there might be other options in the future Um, or maybe, you know, there will be a new technology that we can revive the original. um, And so, yeah, I mean, we should do our best to respect uh, the artist's voice, but also some things that the artist might have, um, you know, said might might just change in the future because there are new technologies available. So keeping it a little bit flexible in the sense uh, and be open to what, um, you know, science will give us, um, you know, what kind of tools we will be available,
1: I think would be great. Mm. So um, the field um, currently um, looks at the work defining properties of an artwork to really understand what can be changed in the future if necessary and what cannot be changed. And to define this together with the artist when a work enters a collection is really helpful in that regard. Also, I want to mention that um, conservation usually is so dependent on, we as a cons- conservators, we we are so focused on physical presence of artworks. So, with the conservation of time-based media, we have to let go to a certain degree. And so, <clears throat> in order to develop our conceptual framework and methodologies, uh, it was basically and at the Tate who spearheaded um, the idea of looking at theatrical pieces or audio works and look at those works more like a score so we again have to define the work defining properties but to allow that the works can change to a certain degree and that we have to accept that they have to change and that we now become the manager of the change but it, it took a while for the professional as a whole to let Go holding on to the physical
0: presence. Right, that makes sense. So,
2: so, I think this is what I learned from Christina is to to let go a little bit of the material and to believe more in ideas and and concepts. Um, and and I think maybe to many of our listeners, this might also be um, still you know a process that everybody goes through. Um, and for me, it is it is it really began at that point when I accepted that well, um, you know, all art artists forever in the day they have um, just um, used the technology available to them and as soon as something new became available they were incorporated it in their art and that was you know every painter was keen to you know try out new pigments or um, you know once glass blowing was invented of course you know it was widespread and used and has changed the way that uh, certain pieces could be produced. So new technologies are, um, are an amazing um, push into the art world. And we just have to accept that currently we get a really big push here.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I always think we had this discussion before, but the idea of Vincent van Gogh painting with this pigment that would then change colors over time, right? And so the, the way we look at a Vincent van Gogh painting now might look completely different than how he painted it. But we all accept it just as the way we've seen it for the past 100 years, let's say, right? right. So th- this is an example of an artist who d- didn't really think about the fact that this would change. And I, I wonder how much artists should be paying attention to that, though. Mm-hmm. It feels like another job for an artist yeah. to have to consider all the materials now when you're making a time-based media piece. Mm-hmm. Right? Should that be the onus on the artist or should it be on the conservator? Or is there another party that mm-hmm. should manage this?
2: Well, if we if we look at, uh, at paintings, um, you know, Van Gogh or Renoir or um, Gainsborough, um, they knew during their lifetime uh, probably they did know some of them did certainly uh, that uh, the colors they were using are changing but that was a very slow change and probably you know like for one observer in uh, you know certain certain time it was not um, really obvious so these very slow changes are now you know, transferred into very rapid changes. And conservation has learned how to deal with these slower changes. So we study the artist's palette, we understand, um, you know, the chemistry of those colors and how they degrade and how quickly they change. And we try to understand at what stage in the fading history of an artwork um you know we would be right now so that we can you know just recommend uh, certain um preventive conservation measures such as lower the light levels exclude uv you know be careful when this goes on loan and all of that so these are you know the the slower changes that in the meantime we try um to manage and um and accept um and i think what we should do much more uh, is to also communicate this uh with the audience and with those you know going to a museum and now of course we have so many more opportunities with um digital reconstructions to also um you know at least with profound scientific research um you know get an idea what did this piece really look like when it was created? And um, and then, you know, put this next to each other without any judgment, you know, saying, oh, this is degraded now. No, it has changed with time. And this is what it looked at the beginning when it was created. So all of this is, um, you know, sounds quite easy when we deal with a slow change, but now we are dealing with, um, you know, so much more rapid changes with time-based media.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's look at one specific example. I know, Christina, you worked on uh, Lynn Hirschman's Agent Ruby piece.
1: Um, one of our students uh, did. Oh,
0: okay. Uh can you describe that piece basically, mm-hmm. and how you would go about uh, approaching a piece like this, for mm-hmm. in terms of pre- preserving it?
1: Mm-hmm. It's most um, likely one of the first internet-based um, artificial intelligence works that was purchased um, by an institution, and so it's um, it's it's basically mm-hmm. um, Agent Ruby. <clears throat> is um, uh, a character that appears to you <clears throat> when you, um, enter the website and you can chat with agents you will be so you can have a conversation.
0: And it's a, with, it's like a giant face, basically, it's like right? It's a giant
1: face and there are, you know, there are different facial expressions that will come or show within the conversation. So it's, uh, flash base work, and um, so it's uh, not going to be supported uh, in 2020. And the student was looking into creating different prototypes on, on uh, HTML5 um, version and uh, JavaScript in order to provide the owning institutions with some references to make a decision if they want to use one or the other moving forward. So it was really about decompiling the files and recompiling um, the work in order to provide two new prototypes. So yeah,
0: Flash is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Because we who, you know, we used to work in Flash. <laughs> I did as an artist. And everybody thought, oh, Flash is going to be around for a while. And then Apple came around and said, "Oh no, no more Flash. We're not allowing that." Yeah. Um so who makes that decision though? Who decides which format to move forward with mm-hmm. with a piece like that? Uh
1: it, it, many many institutions have formed media teams which brings together the stakeholders um, in the institution uh, that all have a say <laughs> it, it, when it comes to the media collection. So usually there's uh, the media curator, there's a conservator part of it, a registrar, collection manager, IT can be part of it as well legal advice, um, the AV technicians. so And many, many, many institutions have regular meetings for this group to come together to um, answer these hard questions, but also to discuss future acquisitions. So it is known early that a work is considered to be um, acquired so everybody can start thinking about what are actually the deliverables that we acquire when we purchase uh, a media based works? And what are the risks associated with it? What are the foreseeable risks of obsolescence? What are the risks of storing it? Should backup be purchased, um, right away? Um, and, um, most institutions are currently, um, approaching these questions as uh, as a group of stakeholders. Uh,
2: that that brings us actually um, to the question about, um, you know, what is at the core competency of a conservator and what are conservators really doing and what is their main responsibility. And what Christina just described for for this piece uh, or for Flash actually is that, it's similar with uh, traditional uh, works of art because it is the role of the conservator to lay out different options so this is not uh, you know somebody making you know decisions in 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 the back room for an artwork but it is really about laying out options then you know discussing with a scientist you know how far can we go or what does it make does it make sense to remove certain layers or to add something um mm-hmm. And then discuss with uh, the art historian about the context of the work and then always consider also where will it go back to, what is the rest of the collection, the display conditions. And so um, decisions about uh, conservation are always a team effort, um, have always been and should be. Um, so the curators are on board, the owners, um, the scientist, uh, the conservator, and then it can actually, uh, for the same piece, go into different directions depending on the context or um on the condition of the artwork or whatever. And this becomes now um a bit more complex with time based media simply because um you know, technical obsolescence and you know, a few more questions are added to this complex uh, decision-making mm-hmm.
0: process. It's so interesting to me that, you know, when we see a painting hung in a gallery or museum, there's so many people behind it that we never think about, <laughs> right? right? The placard should feature not just the name <laughs> of the artist, but everybody who's yeah. all this village of people that have worked on the piece, right? Well,
2: already about the plaque, you know, you, uh, you cannot imagine how many discussions are about what should be on the wall label. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> are there, has there been a situation where a museum or institution will not purchase a piece because of the challenges of conserving that piece? I hope but. not.
2: <laughs> well, um, maybe they, they don't think that deeply. <laughs> they do. And then later they really um, understand um, how much um, responsibility it is yeah. to keep it going.
1: Yeah. I think it's important um, that it's fully understood what it means to own this piece and that it is a responsibility mm-hmm. to own the work. So um, hopefully this will not stop the institution to do so. But if you're not ready to support a complex piece, it's probably go to know this early to base your decision-making on it. But one thing I would like to add is when you think of um Artworks like watercolor or photography works that are light sensitive and you only want to show them for a limited amount of time on view to protect them. The opposite is true for time-based media. One of the highest risks for time-based media works is that they slip through the institutional memory. And the good service you can do to time-based media mm-hmm. works is to show them regularly. And it's really, really important that the institution has a very, very good knowledge um, of the piece and its current condition. And there's only one way to find out. You have to perform it and you have to install it.
0: Yeah, it sounds almost like uh, a plant, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like having a plant yeah, that yeah. you have to constantly I'm feed constantly in water. Right? Oh, think
1: about um, performance pieces, which t- which technically also fall under time-based media works. If you're thinking of the body of work by Tino Segal, which is completely immaterial. He thinks there are too many materials in the world, so also the purchase of this work is entirely immaterial. There's no written record of how the performances should be performed. The only way to re-perform them is to keep the institutional memory, how it should be done. And similar to the media committee meetings, many institutions owning Tino Segal's work have regular meetings just to keep the institutional memory going.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, Tino Segal is really interesting to me. I went to a show at the Guggenheim a couple of years ago, yeah. and the whole show was just people would come out of nowhere as I'm walking up the ramp at yeah. the Guggenheim and ask me about progress, what I thought about <laughs> progress. And I could see half of the audience being completely confused and wondering where the artwork was because mm-hmm. the Guggenheim was completely empty. Yep. Yeah. So with a piece like this, they have meetings about it constantly just to talk about the work and how to maintain it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's 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 my understanding because there's literally no written record, um, about some uh, works. I, um, learned it the hard way. So the Museum Ludwig purchased the uh, team musical piece in 2005. Uh, at that point in time, his body of work was not as well known as it is today. So I, personally he was unfamiliar with his work himself so it was supposed to go on view um in uh, north of Venice so and I was there for the installation so I approached the artist and got out my camera and was like oh may I um video record you training um the performer of, of your work and he was like absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> so because that's
0: the work itself right that's
1: the work itself and there should be no record of it so i went back to the institution and um, looked in the object file and there it was one newspaper clipping about his work there's absolutely no written record
0: about it. Do you think that's done on purpose, though, to maintain sort of the scarcity of the work?
1: I think it's. he makes the point that we have too many materials in the world. And mm. he wanted to cut down the materials. I think that's what, what it is. And he believes in the human interaction and the social interaction. And this is what is driving his body of work.
0: Oh, I find that fascinating. I also think that yeah. uh, time-based media artists can also be kind of a pain <laughs> to work well, with.
2: I mean, you know, he speaks to your material scientist again. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it 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 is really uh, a totally different mindset on how you have to approach these works. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, tell me about the program. So, this program you, you founded this program last September. Is that correct?
1: Started last yeah. September, but we um, got a planning grant, and so mm-hmm. we were in the prestigious um, position to spend two years on mapping out how this could look like. So we had, um, yeah, members, advisory board members, planning committee members who helped us to envision how a time-based media specialty curriculum could look like in the school. Yeah.
2: So, um, I mean, in the end, we start from a very um, uh, well-established uh, curriculum in art conservation and art history. So the students graduating from the conservation center, they get a dual degree um, an MA in Art History and an MS in Conservation. And that worked fine for many, many years, decades um, for, you know, as I explained, you know, paintings or paper or uh, library and archive materials photographs, textiles, all fine, Um, but now we have this additional skill sets that we have to teach and how do we best approach this. And as Christina, you know, described, we had to really go back to the drawing board and uh, ask ourselves, you know, what are these skills that our um, TBM students will need in addition Um, and, um, also, you know, where are the possible instructors because it's the chicken and egg story, right? Um, you want to start a new specialties, uh, specialty, but then, you know, who can teach it if there are so few people around who actually understand how it should be done and what can be done. Um, and yeah, and so this was our two years, um, exploratory phase, And what was also important is to uh, really understand that it is a new specialty, so it's not a totally new degree. So we also had to fit it into our uh, MA, MS degree. And uh, the way we think is um, the way to go here is to consider it um, an additional uh, specialty while still... Um, anchored in art history and modern and contemporary art conservation. So we don't want to, um, educate just tech specialists who can deal with the plug side of the art, but really to see the artworks as, um, a holistic challenge, um, with context and, um, you know, and potentially future transfers.
0: Are you working with institutions as well? Like, do you work with museums as part of this program?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we are in this wonderful place (laughs) in New York City where we can uh, collaborate with so many colleagues in other institutions, but also, um, technicians, engineers like you guys (laughs) Mm -hmm. are in close proximity. So we are really lucky that so many experts are right at our fingertips.
2: And it was uh, also a big surprise and a very positive surprise that within uh, New York University, we could find so many um, people working in adjacent fields. And um, uh, this is how we came to ITP and IDM here at Tandon School of Engineering. Um, and, uh, you know, some of our colleagues here are teaching for us now. Um, and we are hoping to connect with the latest, you know, options on how to create artworks because conservators will always be, you know, a few steps behind what artists are actually generating. And so it is very important to be also in touch with those who create artworks and those who actually teach on how to create artworks.
0: So do you have an artist that would come to the center and then your students would study the way this artist works specifically? Do you have have pieces on display at the center that people can look at?
2: Um our students actually um the the real you know hands on work they would do in museums mm. um but we have several artists coming for evening lectures or um you know being involved in in workshops we also do for example workshops on artist interviews so um i think that the collaboration with the artists is something that our students can exercise on many different levels Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't really, um, have pieces not yet in our study collection. But if you want to give up. (laughs) (laughs) You've
0: been after me for a while. (laughs) Ask you a few times. I'm always. I'm very interested in conservation, so uh, maybe yeah. Maybe I'll drop off a piece and then just. But you know, it's always the terror of the artist to watch their piece be on display if you're making time-based media work because you're constantly waiting for that call in the background that someone's going to say something went wrong or it broke and you feel responsible for it. You know, it
2: would be great if you have it at our place. You know, we would might we we would even want to repair it. If yeah, that's it true.
1: Wrong,
0: right, that's, <laughs> that's definitely true. We
1: want to build a study collection. I mean, right now it's only. Engine, Ruby and the the flash files uh, in, in the center, but it will grow.
0: <laughs> Good, I'm glad. And what what kind of careers do your students go on to do? Are, are they working with museums primarily? Are they working for collections?
1: Well, the first cohort started literally <clears throat> last fall in 2018. so, so we don't know yet <laughs> it's yet yeah. and uh, yeah, it's, it's the first um, program in the US offering the specialty. Wow. but what we can say for sure is we have monitored the job market and the job postings and it's exponential. So it's very safe to say that the um, job openings by far, outnumber the few students who will graduate uh, in the years to come. There is an enormous need in the field and it it will only grow.
2: Um, Also important to know is that our students will graduate with a degree in art history and modern and contemporary art conservation. So they will not just apply for jobs which are um, specific for TBM, mm-hmm. because most museums and collections, they have a mixed collection. And so it is very important that, um, you know, our graduates can also deal with, um, you know, mixed media or, you know, even traditional uh, contemporary mm-hmm. artworks.
0: Do you see that changing in the future, though? I feel like so many museums are acquiring time-based media works right now that there's going to need to be someone at that museum that just focuses on those works, right?
2: Right. right. Well, the question is if those museums can afford a dedicated position. And, of course, there will be more and more who will do that. But if not, then, you know, like Christina, people would work as freelance conservators and then just serve different um, institutions.
1: Hmm. There's certainly a need in... In institutions, there's a need. In private collections, there, artists and artists' foundations often turn to us as well, and and asking um, for advice. Um, time-based media conservation has. Established, I want to say, in U.S. institutions, major U.S. institutions within the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And smaller institutions either work with um, colleagues in private um, practice or ask um, their conservators to dedicate part of their time to time-based media as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And we should also mention here that there are a lot of institutions who do not know yet that they need a time. Right. For the <laughs> or who have specific problems and, and they would like to know mm-hmm. more about it. So the Mellon Foundation gave us this project, not just to establish this specialty um, of education, but also to provide workshops, which um, are, you know, without registration fee. People can apply and they are for two days Four days for certain uh, certain topics that um, might just be important for um, people working on specific artworks. Uh, like what would one of those
0: topics be? Like, could you give an example of one uh-huh. of the topics?
2: Yeah, we had uh, artists' interviews, for example. We had digital preservation, and then art with a plug, which is actually a collaboration here uh, with ITP, is more or less covering electric electronic components so that will be the next one that we provide mm-hmm. and we also do evening lectures uh which is a way to reach out to more general public um and to raise awareness of this um field and we have a great website and a lot of mm-hmm. our lectures are actually online to
1: watch and um we will expand this prog- mm-hmm. program in the next 2 years okay. yeah and yes, yeah, those workshops are really designed for both the students, and as they are mandatory for the students, but uh, also offered as continuing education to our colleagues already working in the field, since there were limited options for education in the past. The need for continuing education is huge, and the workshops are really, really popular, so we can see that the need is out there. Plus, it gives us the advantage that our students getting to know our Colleagues in the institutions early. So they're working alongside in those workshops, which brings in real world scenarios from our colleagues working in institution and exposes the, the, the students to them as well. And they can also um, create, yeah connections
2: yeah it's i think it's all about networking because Mm -hmm. you will always need another colleague specializing in you know let's say light-based works or software uh, software software-based art so um you know knowing each other it's such a niche you know it's 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 very important that we create a community and help each other
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like you're creating a great community, though, from the ground up. (laughs) To be the only program that's uh, studying this sort of thing is fantastic. Well, before we go, and and believe it or not, we're almost at our time limit here. (laughs) Uh, We have a tradition on state of the art of asking some rapid fire questions at the end. Not to spring this on you. (laughs) Don't be nervous. It's going to be fine. Um, But I'll ask you each uh, question, and it won't be even necessarily about time-based media art or conservation. Uh, So here's the first question for you each to answer. If you could have dinner with one artist who's living or dead, who would it be and why?
2: It would be Dan Flavin for me, really, Um, just uh, simply because I I, I feel that, um, you know, creating space um, with light is something wonderful. I would like to talk with him
0: about this.
1: Well does it necessarily have to be an artist. (laughs) (laughs) Just a
0: person? You want to pick a person?
1: I really would love to have dinner with Oscar Wilde.
0: Hmm. Why?
1: Uh, I think that he is just representing a fascinating person in that time that he lived in. So I want to really get a better idea of how eccentric he is.
0: Great. I think he counts as an artist. (laughs) Um, If you could open a museum anywhere, and it could be about anything, it doesn't have to be about artwork, let's say, Mm -hmm. what museum would you open? Wow,
2: um, I would like to know how museums change in the future. Um, and and a future this,
0: museum, then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would
2: be a future museum on how to how to get the future on display and how to discuss and interact with others about what museums should really be like. Because it's it's a discussion that is ongoing, of course, in our community. And um, yeah, the museum of the future. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Not sure what's going to
1: be on display. Well,
0: it seems like what you're teaching is the museum of the future already. So. Uh, Part of it. <laughs> How about you, Christina? Mm.
1: I got fascinated with a um, work that I have uh, seen recently um, at the Shed. It is currently um, on view there in an exhibition called Manual Override. Uh, it's Lynn hirschman Leeson's entire oeuvre, the binary code. So it either was digitized or born digitally, but she translated the binary code into a little vial that is holding the DNA of mm. the entire oeuvre. And that got me thinking um, how this is done, and maybe more importantly, how do you translate it back to the binary code? So when um, dealing with time-based media art, we also now are um, handling a big amount of digital data, and the institutions have to all find their way of doing so. So we are talking close to petabytes of data that Mm -hmm. needs to be managed. So when I saw this little vial and the DNA, it also got me thinking of alternative ways how artworks could live on. And in a way, having your entire river being stored in in a DNA kind of brings it in full circle to say in full double helix. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking of the, of the museum of experimental media here.
0: Hmm. And the artwork would all be stored in DNA or different? <laughs> <laughs>
1: to <be the> term. <laughs> That's
0: an interesting idea. You go to a museum and it's just a bunch of vials on the wall. Right. Like this is the Picasso vial. This is the Rembrandt vial. I like it. All right. Last question here. Uh, what is your favorite food? If you could have one meal, uh, only, let's say. <laughs> which which food would you pick and why?
2: Uh, well, you know, we are German. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm still the bratwurst person. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, there. <laughs>
0: How about you, Christina? Bratwurst also?
1: I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. That's what these questions are about.
1: All right. So... Königsberger <laughs> <laughs> Klopse.
0: I'm sorry. What what is that? I, I'm not aware of that in particular. <laughs>
1: it's a it's a, a meal that was actually I think came from East Prussia. It's like a sweet sour meatball. with huh. uh, capers uh, in a in a in a um, uh, in a white sauce. So it's something you grow up with when you grow up in Germany.
0: Yeah. Is there a place in New York that makes this? My husband. <laughs> okay, I'll go. I'll go over there sometime for, to try it out. Well, thank you so much for being on State of the Art thank today. You, Ed, it's been great you. to speak with you. Where can people find out more about the program?
2: Well, we have a great website. Um, you know, New York University Institute of Fine Arts, um, and then you go to Conservation Center, and then you end up with um, Time Based Media, and there you can find all of, you know about our curriculum, and for those interested to apply to our program, but then also our evening lectures online. And and possible workshops. And uh, yeah, I hope that our community will be growing and we'll get more artists and engineers interested to join us.
0: And you're taking applications right now? Or are you in the process?
2: Um, December is the deadline. So um, next December would be the next deadline. Yeah. Great. Come and talk to us because it's really important to know, um, you know, if this is the right career for you. And uh, we're very happy to really talk to applicants beforehand.
0: Well, Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, This is State of the Art. Next week, I will be coming to you from New Orleans, where I'm going to be interviewing people about Lunafet, which is a video mapping festival. Uh, So stay tuned for that. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of State of the Art. State of the Art is an at art production created by Ethan Appleby. Vanessa Wilson is our awesome producer extraordinaire and Weston Stevens edits all the audio. to remove things like weird noises that I make. Uh, I'm Gabe Barcia Colombo. You can always find me at GabeBC or follow us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, Next week, I'm coming to you from New Orleans. So uh, get ready for some crazy video mapping out on the streets during Lunafet. Stay tuned and I'll talk to you next week.